What is up, fools? This is the QTR Podcast. How the hell is everybody today? Good, great, grand, wonderful. We're heading into Memorial Day weekend, folks. It's summer. The sun is finally out. I love this shit. The sun comes up at like 5 in the morning, and it goes down at like 9 at night. It should be like this year-round. It's great. I'm up early. I'm productive. I'm out late. We're, you know, we got the windows open. Life is good right now. What a great season. Unfortunately... The entire global economy is in shambles. We'll get to that. That is a small footnote, unfortunately, uh, while you're enjoying your Memorial Day weekend. But I want to say I'm happy to have George Gammon here with me today. Before we get started, first and foremost, I want to remind my listeners that this podcast is brought to you by my patrons. Patrons are people that sign up and donate a monthly recurring sum to help support the podcast. I'm going to shout out some of my patrons. I'll give you the rules for the podcast, and we will be on our way. First and foremost, I want to shout out my friends over at the Sang Lucci Steam Room. The Steam Room, created by Sang Lucci and Wall Street Jesus, is one of the best pieces of software available. If you want to track money coming into the options market, which many times can be a great way to forecast where equities are going to go just by watching where the big money is landing in the options market. The Steam Room, which is a piece of software now that has been under development and in the works and being constantly updated for a decade now, is the best way to do it. Sang Lucci and Wall Street Jesus, they will give you a free trial if you want. These guys are my friends. I've known them for about a decade now. Wonderful people. Their link is in my podcast description. Check out the Steam Room if you want a little bit of insight into the world of options and uh, and where some money is going. Tape reading, market psychology. These guys are experts at it. If you don't want the extra help, then don't contact them and just sit around and be miserable. I don't really care. This podcast is also brought to you by my friends over at JM Bullion. They are my exclusive gold and silver providers. Love these guys. They have been in business for a decade now. They've done over $3 billion in sales. I love ordering from them. They always have great inventory in stock. They turn around my orders quickly. They ship discreetly. And best of all, QTR podcast listeners have the lovely Laura, L-A-U-R-A, at jmbullion.com. If you want to reach out to her, she's there exclusively for you guys. If you have any questions, if you need any help, if you've never ordered bullion online before, JM Bullion is the place that I want to send you to buy your gold and silver, not just because they support the podcast, but because I like them and I like ordering from them. See, that's the thing about my podcast, my sponsors. It's shit that I use and things that I like. You know, it's not just a bunch of bullshit. I've had people say, oh, can we sponsor? I have one guy like, my podcast wants to sponsor your podcast. I said, what's your podcast? He told me I don't want to say the name because it's a relatively well-known one. I said, listen, man, I've never listened to your podcast. I'm sorry. I don't really know who you are. I said, you want to sponsor my podcast with your podcast? And he's like, yeah. And I'm like, well, that doesn't really make any sense. I'm like, I don't want to fucking tell people to go listen to something else. I want them to listen to my shit right now. And plus, I've never even heard of you. You know, and he's like, well, I'm, you know, number one on so-and-so and this, that, and the other. And I'm like, yeah, sorry, dude. Doesn't make any sense to me. No offense. Seems like a fucking super nice guy. Probably has a way better podcast than I do. But that shit doesn't make sense. But what does make sense is shouting out people like Doomberg, which is my favorite substack to read. I love Doomberg. Doomberg looks at the market through the eyes of a skeptic, through an Austrian economist, through a libertarian. They are experts on things like commodities and energy, which obviously I'm not an expert in. And I'm always eager to crack open their next piece over at Doomberg. They've become a resounding success in the small time that they've had a substack because, believe it or not, drumroll, folks, 
they put out fucking quality work. It's not that hard. What do you think about that? <laughs> Doomberg Substack, Sang Lucci in the Steam Room, George Gammon's Rebel Capitalist Pro, which we'll talk about today, and JM Bullion. All those guys are all in my podcast description. You can check it out there. This podcast also brought to you by my friends like Mr. Russell Valenti, who I hope he doesn't mind if I congratulate him on his recent matrimonious, uh, ceremonious, uh, whatever. He got fucking married is what I'm trying to say. (laughs) Why are you beating around the bush, Chris? Well, I don't speak English very well. But Russ, what's up, dude? Congratulations. Couldn't fucking be happier for you. Your pictures look great. You guys look so fucking happy together. And uh, loving it, man. Absolutely loving it. Couldn't be happier for you. And that's that. That's my shout-out to Russ Valenti. And how about my buddy Jay Mincemeyer, one of the great shipping analysts. And uh, I will shout-out some of my patrons later on. But right now, I want to give you the two rules for the podcast. The first is that we have a three-drink minimum. And the second is that this is not investment advice, life advice, or any kind of advice. I'm not a registered anything. I hold no licenses. I am not a professional. I'm not a professional anything. I'm definitely not qualified to hand out investment advice, and you shouldn't be listening to anything that I say at all. At least George Gammon has an understanding of what he's talking about. I just come on here and have verbal diarrhea of the mouth for about an hour, or in the case now where I have a guest, maybe just you know half of that hour, a part of that hour. Uh, and then I go on with my day. So if you have any investment problems, consult a professional. If you have any life problems, talk to a fucking therapist. And uh, that's basically my advice for you today. Uh, hello, welcome to a finance podcast. My name is Chris Irons, and I'm glad you're here. All right, I don't know how he makes time for me anymore. He's uh, become uh, like super famous in the financial world. As a matter of fact, I was listening to Peter Schiff's podcast the other day. And he just mentioned you out of nowhere. Like, yeah, I was I was watching George Gammon the other day, and he said this, this, and this. And I was like, holy shit. I'm like, Peter Schiff is watching George Gammon for his information now. My, how the tables have turned, my friends. He did it, well, though. He carved he carved an hour out of his schedule for me today. How the hell are you, George? What's up, dude? Well, I'm fantastic. Thanks for having me on. It's always great to talk to you. And, uh, you know, Schiff called me on the phone, actually, after he watched that video to tell me where I was wrong oh, and what yeah. I should have done differently. <laughs> and you know Schiff well, and, uh, you know, that totally fits his personality. But uh, he was he was spot on. He made some great points uh, that I should have probably highlighted a little bit more in the video. But, uh, you know, it was always great to talk to Peter, but I just thought it was, it was kind of a fun story <laughs> on, and explains how he operates. He called me after he put that tweet out about Zelensky wearing a suit. You know, he was like, hey, Zelensky, if you're going to address Congress, you might as well wear a suit. And I responded yeah. to him and I was like, listen, the guy's in the middle of, you know, defending his nation. I'm like, let's give him a pass on wearing a fucking suit. You know, and then, of course, like he got ratioed on that tweet, which he did a whole podcast about in Peter Schiff style, talking about how it was the it, was, it got the most impressions out of any tweet he ever had. But after I responded to him and my response got, you know, two or three thousand likes, he called me. He called me that that day. I was at a family barbecue <laughs> and, yeah. and he just he called me to like argue with me about it. And I'm like, 
I'm like, dude, I'm at a barbecue. And like, what are you doing? Aren't you worth like $200 million? You know, like, don't you have something you should be doing other than calling me? And I, I couldn't fucking get him off the phone, George. I couldn't get him off the phone. He said, yeah, but my point is, but my point is, you got to look at it this way. I'm like, Peter, okay, okay. It's okay. You win. I'll take the tweet down. You know, I don't care. You know, I got a fucking beer in one hand and a chicken wing in the other hand. And I'm just like, you know, I got my family's looking at me like, what are you doing? You know, I'm like, that's fucking Peter Schiff. Call me to argue about his Twitter post. Uh, so I know very well. I know yeah, very well. Yeah, he's he's fantastic. He Peter's is. A, a great guy, and uh, he, he's a real funny guy in, in real life. I had the opportunity to hang out with him over Christmas at his house with Brent Johnson. Uh, he had a Christmas party over there. And uh, we didn't talk about macro at all, but P- Peter's just a really, really nice guy. And, uh, you know, he deserves all the success that he's had. He definitely does. He's a hell of a guy. I really, really like him. Did you watch his debate that he just did? Well, he didn't just do it. It was recorded in March of this year, but was published yesterday um, on Real Vision with Ross Gerber. No, but I read your or I, I scanned your article this morning that you had on Zero Hedge. Yeah. Uh, talking about that debate and kind of the back and forth between Peter and uh, and, and Gerber. And, uh, you, know, you know, Gerber just you, I think there's some good uh, arguments to push back on Peter's point with inflation in the 1970s and uh, positive real rates. And that's what Volcker did. I think there's some good ways to push back there. But Gerber obviously doesn't understand economics enough or history, economic history, wow. to be able to you know, combat what Peter was saying. And if you listen to the debate, it would be one thing if he was taking exception uh, with the uh, he you know, Gerber is is arguing a different point than Peter's arguing. You know, Peter's talking about inflation and when he's saying it's going to be like the 1970s, at least this is my analysis, because I had to listen to it again yesterday when I went to transcribe some of it. So I wound up listening to the whole thing a couple of times. And I think what's happening, if you listen to the interview, is Peter is trying to say this is like the 70s because of the inflation of the 70s. And Gerber is hearing it as it's like the 70s because, you know, we're wearing bell bottoms and, you know, the computer hasn't oh. been invented yet. I think they're talking about two completely different things. You know, Ross is like, it's not like the 70s at all. We've got computer chips now. You know, and at one point, Peter says to him something about, you know, taming inflation. And Ross is like, well, we have technology now. Yeah, I just, again, I don't think he understands economics well enough to present a rational argument or rebuttal to Peter's position. Isn't it funny that you don't need to understand, you know, that really what he's trying to do, what I wrote was he's putting together this mishmash of, you know, CNBC headlines and Stephanie Kelton style MMT arguments all in this, you know, kind of mush of crap and buzzwords and talking points. But isn't it funny that you don't really even need to like master MMT you just need to like read basic economics by Tom, Thomas Sowell like you just need the, the the meat and potatoes of economics to figure it out yeah well I I would go so far as you only need common sense right I, I don't know that you even know need to read basic economics by Thomas Sowell but uh just I mean I think if you went to a third grader and said hey can you print a, 
a bunch of money indefinitely and have other people just send you goods and services forever? Uh, they would say, no, that doesn't make any sense because you're not providing any goods and services. And <laughs> I mean, that kind of debunks it right there, you know, and, uh, but the, the whole thing, you know, MMT, I got to give them a little bit of credit because they do understand the uh, Fed's balance sheet and the commercial bank's balance sheet uh, uh, better than most. And they do understand uh, money, quote unquote money, or we'll call it currency, uh, a bit better than most. But my goodness gracious, it's, it's like Marxism where, you know, he, he pretty much got a lot of the problems correct, but the solutions are just wildly, wildly wrong. And uh, I, I think that's kind of what sums up MMT. And, you know, we see that happening right now. You know, their solution for the inflation that we're seeing in the United States would be just to increase the tax rate. But that's the complete opposite of what you want to do. You know, the, the whole problem with inflation is that people have too many currency units relative to the amount of goods and services that we have available to us. Right. That's what causes consumer price inflation. So the solution or consumer price inflation is more stuff. It's not more currency units. And how do you create more stuff if you're taxing the people that produce the stuff in the first place? Right. And the, for some reason, you know, the, the, the intellectuals in society, mentioning another one of Thomas Sowell's books, uh, can't get their head around that, but a third grader or a fifth grader could. Yeah, well, you know, speaking of right problem, wrong solution. I'd be interested in your take on what's going on in the world of crypto right now. Well, I, th I mean, my initial thoughts are that crypto is, is very similar to the dot-com era of the late 1990s, where it, you could have said back then that the internet is the future, and you could have been correct, but that doesn't mean that 99% of the dot-com stocks won't go bust. Right. And I think it's similar with crypto. You can say that crypto is the future. Okay, that's fine. But uh, that doesn't mean that 99% of the cryptocurrencies out there won't go to zero. And uh, you know, people are going to have to learn very difficult lessons. You know, what's fascinating is I was doing a podcast in Miami with a, a couple young kids, I call them kids, they're probably in their mid-20s. Uh, it's called the Fresh and Fit Podcast. And these guys really, I think, have their finger on the pulse of that male 20-something audience. And I was talking to the guys off uh, when we weren't recording, and they were telling me about all their buddies in Miami that are rich, but they always have to lend these guys uh, dollars for lunch or to pay their rent or to pay their car note or something like that. And I'm like, well, why do you always have to lend them money if they're rich? And they said, because they have every single penny they to their name in cryptocurrency, every single penny. And so, um, you know, and it's not all in Bitcoin or Ethereum or something like that. It's mostly in these altcoins. And, uh, you know, we saw what happened with Terra uh, Terra Luna, whatever you want to call it, and it, it can go to zero very, very, very fast. And I think a lot of the, the kids in that demographic who have declined to go back to work after the, the, the COVID lockdowns, uh, you know, and the stimulus checks, 
I think they're going to find themselves in a position in the next, call it six months, especially if cryptocurrency continues to trade as a leveraged derivative of the NASDAQ. Uh, if it continues to do this and then the cryptocurrencies go down, these altcoins, you know, they're going to find themselves in a position where they get completely wiped out and they're just blown through their stimmy check savings and they're going to have to go back to work. And what that means for macro, at least in the United States, is we could go from a labor shortage to a labor surplus very, very quickly. And you combine that with, you know, if the NASDAQ continues to slide and if we do go or stay in a bear market with the S&P and the Dow and the Russell, you know, that comprises most people's 401k right there. And so you had all the retirees retiring early because their 401k tripled or whatever since, uh, you know, COVID March 2020. And then you had all the kids not going back to their McDonald's jobs or Starbucks jobs or whatever, their retail jobs, because they're making a killing in, in crypto. So I think those could go away very rapidly. And that's kind of what we're seeing, this transition right now. And if we go into a labor surplus, then we we get just the uh, a, a mirror or an exact replica of the 1970s stagflation, where you do have that high CPI and you have that combined with high rates of unemployment. It's all about the labor force participation right now. That's the big difference between, as far as statistically, right, with the headline numbers between the 70s and the 2020s. Yeah, and are you really rich if all your money is in altcoins and you can't get it out? I mean, that sounds well, like a bunch of bullshit, I'm sure, to you and to me too. Hey, uh, I'm rich. I'm worth millions. By the way, can I get $600 for rent? Something's wrong there, right? Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Well, to, to you and I, you know, that, that sounds uh, commonsensical. But to the, the kids and, you, you know, it, you, you've got to understand the mindset of a bubble. And this would have been consistent with the tulip craze or the dot-com craze or the real estate uh, you name it. it. It's it's all the same human psychology because we've been hardwired this way for a long, long time. And and this is why people lose all their money because they just ride it all the way down thinking that that, that this is just, uh, you know, temporary, that it's going to go back up and this is just a temporary decline. Let's buy the dip. And they buy the dip all the way down to zero. And they, and they condition that, each other to think like that. Like with crypto, it is a constant... If you go back and you look at Pompliano and you look at Mashinsky, and I'm not, you know, getting personal. I'm just saying, if you look at what Pompliano says, if you look at what Mashinsky says, if you look what Michael Saylor says, if you look what Max Kaiser says, or you know, Mashinsky does interviews and he wears a shirt that says HODL. That's all they say is HODL. All they want you to do is hold. They want that to become the ethos. Just hold and never let go and hold and never let go. And just to bludgeon that into the heads of people that are probably, let's say, majority our age 18 to 30 and have limited in, you know, investment experience, that is a policy for major disaster. And the nefarious thing is they juxtapose it with the idea that, oh, well, you know, the stock market, a great strategy has always been to buy and hold for, you know, decades and your money compounds. And, you know, they, they use these terms like paying a yield and stuff like that. They sneak these things in there to create the illusion that it isn't nearly as speculative as it is. But, you know, to, to buy and then to continue to hold and continue to hold and continue to hold is the equivalent of going 
to the craps table and just taking another roll and taking another roll and taking another roll and just hoping at some point you're never going to seven out, but you know that you are. Yeah, especially with Bitcoin trading in lockstep with the NASDAQ. Uh, if I was a, a, a Bitcoin maximalist or a hodler or what, whatever you want to call them, uh, I that would be my biggest concern. And I, I don't, I like Pomp. I think he's a good dude. I think he's a really good dude. I've been on panel discussions with him face to face. Really nice guy. And I, I think he understands economics a lot better than the other ones or a lot better than some guys in the space. And I think that uh, he, he has very, very good intentions. Now, Sailor, I don't know. I, the, the thing I really don't, I, and I shouldn't, you know, I don't want to throw anyone under the bus because I don't know Sailor. I've never met him. But when people come out and say that you should, you know, buy cryptocurrency on a credit card or you should take a mortgage out in your house to buy cryptocurrency, anything for that matter, I, I tend to be very skeptical. And I, I think that's very, very dangerous for uh, people, you know, young people who have never lived through a significant recession. They've never lived through a, a massive bear market. And they don't study economic history to know that assets don't always go up. I mean, we look at the Japanese stock market. Uh, I believe in nominal terms, it's lower today than it was in 1990, uh, right before they had their big crash. I, I think the real estate market is the same. I would also point out the United States, the S&P 500. If you look at it from 1927, roughly, to 1980, let's say, adjusted for inflation, it was flat. It was completely flat. And there were periods of t you know, 10, 15 years in there where you would have gotten totally wiped out if you would have just bought the dip, let's say. So it, it's just a complete fallacy to think that uh, the United States stock market just always goes up over time. That's utter nonsense when you adjust for inflation. The only way they can get away with saying that is if they look at a chart going back to 1981, right? When Volcker took rates to whatever, 18, 19%, we've been in, in a downtrend in interest rates for the last 40 years. Uh, okay, fine. But, uh, you know, how are we going to be in another downtrend in interest rates for the next 40 years? Uh, I, I would argue that we're probably going to be and in the opposite cycle, if you look at, again, financial history, you see that interest rates move in cycles, usually 30 to 40 years. So if that's any indicator, that would suggest that the next 30 or 40 years will be in an uptrend in interest rates. And I can almost guarantee you, if we are in an uptrend in interest rates where we go from zero back up to 18%, the stock market is not going to be higher <laughs> in, in the next uh, you know, 10, 20 years. It's not going to behave the same way that it did from 81 to call it 2021. No, and, uh, it, yeah. it, it's not. And I want to go back real quick to just something you just said about Saylor, right? And Michael Saylor coming out and saying, mortgage your house, take on leverage to buy Bitcoin. And I just want to make the quick point that not only does that show a lack of investing acumen in general, right? Because just taking on irresponsible leverage like that to buy anything, if you were going to take it on to buy the S&P ETF, George, which is, you know, arguably one of the most risk adverse exchange traded funds you could buy, 
even that would be irresponsible because if the market, you know, went down 10 or 15%, you could lose 10 or 15% of the equity in your house or, you know, whatever you, so you could put yourself into a, you know, uh, a position there where you get into some type of call or the leverage becomes trouble. But it's especially dangerous when you're using it to buy something as speculative as crypto. But not only is that bad, but it also shows just, I think, a lack of just social and emotional intelligence to to not have the wherewithal to understand that, okay, maybe this is a risky suggestion that I would do that I think is justified, right? I would I would risk my personal house to buy Bitcoin because that's how much conviction I have. But there's no part of his brain that steps in and says, but it's it's probably not the right thing to do to direct people who are in a, you know, one way or another impressionable or malleable to do the same thing. So it's a shitty investment decision compounded by the fact that he does not have the wherewithal to step outside of, uh, outside the box and examine exactly, you know, what the consequences of saying that to somebody would be. Even if it's a success, it's not the right thing to say because it's not your space to say it. And it's not, go ahead. Yeah, I I completely agree. And uh, something that I say on my channel all the time when I'm doing live streams, you know, because I get asked that question constantly, you know, how should I invest? How should, should I sell my house? Should I do this? Should I do that? And I say, listen, I can't tell you what you should do because I don't know your personal situation, right? Like, should you let, uh, hodl Bitcoin? Well, I don't know. Tell me, you know, what does your income stream look like? What does your job look like? Uh, can you afford uh, emotionally? Can you handle taking a drawdown from by 50%? Can you handle something that currently is just trading in, in lock, like a leverage play in the NASDAQ? You know, can you can you handle these swings, and do you have the cash flow to uh, to to really pay your bills while you're waiting, or while you're hodling Bitcoin and waiting for it to go to a hundred thousand or a million or whatever your price target is? You know, not everyone is in that position. Now, some people that maybe they are, uh, like Sailor. You know, Sailor's not going to have a hard time paying his bills, or uh, if he loses everything in Bitcoin. You know, but a lot of people are. They're in a, a much, much different situation. So uh, that's why, uh, uh, that's another reason, just to add to what you're saying, why I think that what he is saying and what he is suggesting is reckless because it's just a one-size-fits-all. And it's it's just, let's let's go back to COVID policy, right? Why, why were uh, the, the, the mandates, as an example, uh, such a bad idea because it was a one size. One of the main reasons was because it was a one size fits all, and and not everyone has the same uh, health metrics, right? You can't compare a 70 year old that weighs 400 pounds with asthma to a 19 year old that's a triathlete, right? The 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 the, the risk reward there for the 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 vaccine is is much 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 different, so. I don't think that uh, you know healthcare should be a one-size-fits-all, and I definitely don't think that investing is a one-size-fits-all either. Yeah, uh, I think you're a hundred percent right. And you know, look to the question of what do I do with my investments? I tell people, you know, it's not my it's not my position to tell you. 
You know, it's really not. You know, I had a family member ask me, you know, I, I bought Bitcoin. Do you think I should hold it? You know, I, what I want to say, I want to say no. You know, I want to say, yeah, you know, I prefer gold or silver or whatever. But I just say, hey, you know, I can't really uh, give you advice on that. I don't really want to talk about it. I don't really want to give advice about it because I really I believe that you have to make your own mistakes to learn to some degree also, too. But I think there's a certain amount of arrogance in you know, directing people in what to do and what not to do. And I have a lot of opinions on things and I share those opinions on Twitter and I share them on my podcast and I share them on my blog. But I, you know, I want to tell people up front, like I get a lot of things wrong and I've lost money investing and I've lost money trading, you know. And so all I'm trying to do is just figure it out along the way. And I'm trying to tell you what I'm doing in order just to give you some transparency. But I'm not telling you do this or do that because I I don't want that on my conscience, number one. I think there's a certain level of arrogance. But to do it with something as speculative as crypto. So let me ask you this. Based on what you were saying before about comparing crypto now to the Internet boom. And, hey, there's a lot of shit that needs to kind of get washed away. Uh, You're kind of comparing the altcoins, I think, today of the uh to the to the speculative you know a lot of the speculative right exactly pets.com style companies that went public uh and never should have do you think bitcoin and ethereum are gonna survive this you know say tether blows and the stable coins you know wind up getting rocked and we have a real serious drawdown in bitcoin to you does bitcoin and ethereum survive and what does the aftermath look like yeah, I think they survive, uh, obviously, at a different price. But uh, that's kind of what what I would wait for. I, I mean, that's what I'm doing in my own personal portfolio because long term, yeah. I, I am. I think uh, Bitcoin is a very good speculation. I am definitely bullish on Bitcoin long term. Ethereum, I haven't really got into it too much, but uh, for sure Bitcoin. But that said, I, I wouldn't add to my position at 65,000. I, I wouldn't add to my position even right now at, let's call it 30,000. And I went out on Twitter, you know, whenever it was at 65, I don't know when that was, what, uh, maybe eight months ago, nine months ago, something, or maybe a year ago. And uh, I, I was kind of questioning, you know, because I saw a lot of hysteria on social media and in the comments of my YouTube videos. And I would just simply make the point that, hey, guys, it's great that it's gone up, but just be very, very careful because it's this could be volatile. Uh, the probabilities of it becoming a global world reserve currency are much, much different than the probabilities of it just going up in price. Right. Those are two completely separate questions. And then just reminding people that there are no certainties. There are only probabilities. That's it. And there is no 100% certainty of anything in life. And so when I saw a lot of people on social media speak like Sailor, speaking in terms of certainties, that's when I get very hesitant. And I was trying to communicate that on Twitter. And of course, I just get attacked by all the cyber hornets or whatever those guys call themselves. And, you know, they make all these memes of me with, uh, you know, a hornet stabbing me in the head or whatever it is. They did the same thing to Raul. I'm sure they did probably the same thing to you. I think they've done the same thing to Brent Johnson. Um, obviously, they did the same thing to Schiff. 
But um, my point wasn't that, uh, you know, Bitcoin sucks or it's going to zero or anything. And I always said that, you know, long term I'm bullish. It's just you, you can't really value it relative to it, its, its own price adjusted for inflation going back 100 years. Right. Like you can't a chart of oil or something. So where where when is it cheap? I can't answer that question. So the only thing that I can do to uh, determine when I should add to my position is just simply look at market sentiment, right? And you always, as Jim Rogers teaches us, you always want to uh, buy panic and sell hysteria. Right. And if there's hysteria, don't buy, right? Wait till there's panic. So that's kind of the strategy that I'm using uh, to add to a, a Bitcoin position. So I, one example I've used is when Sailor has to sell, uh, that's when I'm going to think about buying. Yeah, I agree with you. That That's just, you know, he's kind of a proxy for what capitulation uh, would be or what panic would be as far as the word that Jim Rogers uh, used or has used for, for many, many decades, you know. And so that's kind of how I look at... Uh, Bitcoin, uh, I think it, it will be around. I think the network effects are too strong for it to just completely go away. It's just simply at what price. And so many people try to get caught up in the price of Bitcoin. But uh, to me, that's kind of a secondary reason to, to own it. The first and foremost is just to have some sort of purchasing power that's outside of the banking system. I think you should own physical gold for the exact same reason. And, uh, you know, we are moving into a world of uh, central bank digital currencies. I think they're going to try to ban cash. I think they're going to, I mean, look at what happened to the truckers with uh, Trudeau in Canada. I mean, they look at what happened to the Russian central bank, for heaven's sakes. I mean, that is totally unprecedented. And most people don't really, you know, they hear, oh, we're just going to freeze the assets of the Russian central bank. And they're like, oh, yeah, okay, I get right. it. They, they don't understand how that is the, the nuclear, uh, nuclear financial option. And I don't think that has ever been done before. And what that does, you know, you can say that was a good strategy or a bad strategy. I'm not going to debate that. It's, but, but it's heavy-handed nonetheless. <laughs> but you have to understand, you have to acknowledge that long-term, that is going to prompt other central banks to hold a lot less and a lot fewer dollars right. because they know the United States is, is, is willing to press that red button, right. right? It's the exact same thing that happened back when we dropped the bomb on Japan. You know, even our allies back then started their own nuclear programs because they thought to themselves, my goodness, if the United States is willing to do this <clears throat> to Japan, then why wouldn't they be willing to do this to me? Right in five years or 10 years. Sure, we're friends with them now, but are we gonna be friends with them, you know, a decade? Who, who knows, who can see that far down the road? So, um, you know, I, I, I guess the, the point there is that uh, we're moving into this world where I think the, the global elite are gonna try to control that, uh, that whole entire system, that whole entire monetary system with the central bank digital currency. And therefore, uh, you know, if they're willing to freeze the accounts of truckers, if they're willing to freeze the accounts of uh, a, a central bank, then they're definitely willing to freeze your account. 
And if you've got ev your entire net worth locked up in electronic assets or paper assets, I think you, you could have a big problem, uh, especially if you're someone that values freedom, liberty, and free market capitalism. Yeah, definitely. Um, I'm wondering, before you mentioned uh, our heavy-handed response to COVID, and I have to ask you with what's going on in Shanghai and in China, whether or not you think uh, China could be locking down on purpose with this recent round of lockdowns. It's I wrote an article about it just kind of suggesting that it sure seems like they're doing a hell of a lot here for a virus that we know a lot about that doesn't really seem to pose nearly as much of a threat as everybody thought that it did from day one. And then you look at the lockdowns in Shanghai and they're akin to the ones when COVID first started when we knew nothing, which leads me to believe that either China knows something about the virus that the rest of the world doesn't, or they are using this as either a power grab to control their own citizens and or to gum up the global supply chain whenever they would like either. Um, what are your thoughts? You know, I just listened to the most recent episode of Macro Voices where my good friend Eric Townsend interviewed a gentleman by the name of uh, Louis Vincent Gav, who's uh, incredibly smart. And he goes back and forth between Canada and, and China, I believe Shanghai, or maybe Hong Kong. And he's been in the macro space for a long, long time. He really gets it. And uh, he suggested a couple times that this heavy-handed lockdown is, is, is not because of Omicron. It's, it's not because of, of COVID. Uh, what they could be doing is uh, a strategy to further weaken the United States. Uh, and it, But, the, you know, he went back to and I didn't even know this, but I guess when the, the era of Xi Jinping, when he was like in his 20s, there was just pretty much one book that they were allowed to read. And I guess it was something like Mao's Little Red Book or something like that. But uh, basically it talked about guerrilla warfare. And in, in this phase or in this style of guerrilla warfare, you don't attack your enemy straight on you use all of these kind of side uh, tactics that are kind of um, oh, in the shadows to where the, the, the enemy doesn't really know what you're doing. They can't see it. It's not at the forefront, but it's, it's having the same effect uh, and that effect being weakening your opponent, right? And so China, his argument was China sees the United States right now with a CPI of 8.3%, and that's what the government admits to. They see gas prices at, what, $5, $6 a gallon? I mean, I'm in Phoenix right now, and I just paid, I think, five fifty a gallon uh, just for, you know, just normal, uh, you know, it wasn't even premium. And uh, they see the food shortages. They see a United States where we can't even get baby formula. Right. Right. I mean, I just went into Whole Foods the other day, and it's just, it, it's it's starting to get to a point where, it seems normal for 10 or 15% of the shelves just to be barren, right? And for people who understand the business model of grocery stores, that's that's unthinkable. That would have been completely unimaginable Correct. Correct. back in 2019 because their margins are so low. But we've just gotten accustomed to this. 
And I think it's a China that sees that there's a lot of social unrest. There's a lot of divisiveness in the United States. And if they can create a world where uh, that gets worse, then that technically is weakening uh, a potential enemy they have. So, so that was his position, which I thought was very fascinating. Uh, another thing that would make sense is if they believe that the probability is high that they're going to go to war or that the United States is going to get involved with Russia and they're going to have to side with Russia because although they may uh, have dollars, they don't have energy. And they desperately, desperately need energy. Uh, you know, we see what's happening in Sri Lanka and you don't want that to happen with 1.5 billion people. That's for sure. So they could be conditioning their society to do and, and utilize a lot less energy, understanding that this is kind of a, uh, a scenario that may play out in the future if, if they have to get involved with something between the United States and Russia where the United States will sanction or I guess that might not be the right way to phrase it, but basically the United States will, uh, yeah, I guess sanction would be the right word, where they basically don't allow us to import anything from China. Therefore, they don't get the dollars they need, and it's much harder for them to buy the energy they need. So this could be, again, kind of them conditioning their, their uh, society to do with less energy, maybe less food, because they know that could be a problem in the future that they're going to have to tackle. Uh, that maybe another scenario could be that uh, they don't want to lose face because they initially did the lockdowns. And if they don't lock down now, then uh, the people look at the government and say, well, wait a minute, you, are, you mean to tell us that you were wrong to lock down at the beginning? Because if you're not locked downing, lock, locking down now and we're still getting this spike, that means that you were wrong to begin with. And they may want to save face. I don't know which one of these scenarios is as accurate or even most probable, but I do know there is zero chance that they're lock. <clears throat> excuse me, that they're locking down just because they're afraid of of Omicron. Zero right. chance of that. Right, and I I agree with you. And I actually one second here. Okay, I actually want to add to that and and talk about something that you brought up, which is going into a store and kind of noticing that the shelves are barren and that's normal now. You know, look, you, you can call this a curse. You can call it uh, being paranoid. I've heard every name in the book for it. But you have to admit that people like you and people like me think about these things a little bit differently. We are probably, uh, you know, ahead of the curve when it comes to recognizing these types of potential uh, problems here. Um, which is a good thing and a bad thing. It's a good thing because, you know, in the case like COVID, sometimes it helps you go out and get all the masks and supplies and toilet paper and shit that you need before the rest of the world figures out a month down the road. And sometimes it's a bad thing because, you know, these things never play out and then you kind of just look like the paranoid, uh, you know, goofball, which I, I don't mind at all. I, I gladly take that. Um, I gladly take the bad with the good. But I have to say, you know, last summer, when I first started my blog, I wrote an article called The U.S. is Turning into a Third World Country and Nobody's Even Noticing. And yeah. I wrote it because I went to San Francisco for the first time in two years. And 
I have to tell you, the change in San Francisco was so profound that even as a tourist who only went there once a year, the changes that I saw were stunning. I mean, San Francisco looks like a legitimate demilitarized zone. I mean, and just two or three years prior, it looked like, you know, it looked like full house. You know, it looked like this beautiful uh, American tourist city destination. I mean, it was just gorgeous. And then you go back and everything is boarded up in the areas that used to be, you know, covered from street corner to street corner and tourists have become shanty towns and are barren. And you see things like that. And then I came back to the U- uh, to the U.S., came back to the East Coast, and I went down the shore last summer, and I remember going to this seafood place on the boardwalk, and the first thing that I noticed was this sign in their window that says, you know, we don't have crabs, and the price of lobster has gone up because of inflation. So last summer, I'm thinking, wow, there's really some profound changes happening here in the country. So cut to a year later, George, which is right now. Okay. It's been kind of in the ethos that this is what's happening. And so I think to some degree, people go about their daily business and they see these signs and they see these barren store shelves and they think to themselves, this is going to get better. You know, it's only temporary. And then you have an instance where like I had a couple days ago when I went to a pharmacy here in the city and I went to go get some uh, Resolve carpet cleaner because I spilled soy sauce all over my couch because I'm a disgusting <laughs> slob and I was fucking and I was eating I was eating fucking Japanese food by myself stuffing it down my gullet like a pelican as Bill Burr would say uh, and, and I spilled shit all over myself and the couch and whatever. So I went to go get Resolve carpet cleaner and I went to my local pharmacy and, and I just stopped for a second. Okay. And, and not only were half the store shelves empty and I mean empty, you know, you get a couple shelves where it's like, all right, well, we got some shampoo, we got some soap, we got some body wash, but we don't have this, 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 and this. You know, and I walked over to like where the laundry and the cleaner section is, and they had like well one or two things, a dishwasher things, but no dish soap, and they had you know sponges, but they didn't have steel wool, and they had you know Windex, but they didn't have Lysol, and you're just looking at these shelves like holy shit. So I look down, and I see they have a they have two things of Resolve carpet cleaner. Right. And I think to myself, I better buy both of these Mm, right? because I don't know when the hell I'm going to need it again and whether or not I'm going to be able to get it. And then I stopped and I was like, man, you know, if I'm thinking that now, everybody else is going to be thinking that in six months, you Mm -hmm. know. I better buy two of these. I better get it while I can. And that's not just with the shortages. That's a double-edged sword. It's the shortages and the prices going up. So, so you know, the inflationary mindset is people want to buy it now because they don't want to wait for the price to go up. And the supply chain mindset is they want to buy it now because they don't want people to run out of it in the future. Either way, 
you're pulling forward a shitload of demand, which just fucks up the works even more. And I just stop, you know, and then I go to pay for this shit, George, and they got one employee. They have, and everybody knows this situation, right? They got four self-checkouts. Fucking three of them aren't working. One of them is credit card only and no cash. There's nobody behind the manual cash register. There's one employee scrambling to help people find products, navigate the fucking stupid self-checkout thing that locks up every time you, you know, bump an item on it. And I'm thinking, there's fucking nobody that works here. It's amazing this place is still open. There's nothing on the shelves. Like, what the fuck is going on? And I'm thinking like, man, is this just my CVS here? in my neighborhood, and I live in a decent neighborhood now in the city. And my neighbor said to me yesterday, completely unprovoked out of nowhere, I'm just outside, my neighbor's smoking a cigarette, just shooting the shit, says to me, man, everybody's fucking out of everything around here in this neighborhood. And I was like, yeah, you know what? I just fucking noticed that. Wild, George. When is this going to go from being temporary to sinking in with people and being like, wow, we have a real fucking problem here. Well, basically, I've been seeing the exact same thing. I spend most of my time in Medellin, but I've been in the United States for probably three weeks or so. And I, I think it's fascinating that you don't really have those problems in, in Colombia, which is considered a developing economy, but you don't see barren shelves. They don't have a, a labor shortage. But when I came to Miami, I was trying to get a, a rental car, and my the, the line was like 100 yards long, and it was because they just didn't have the staff. It's the same thing when I checked into the hotel. And uh, like we were saying earlier, I noticed the same things at, at Whole Foods. But I think what people have to do to try to predict when this problem might be resolved in the future is to understand how the problem arise or what what what's what's the root cause of the problem to begin with and if we go back to 2019 when we really didn't have these types of problems let's just assume for a moment that we never had covid and we never had the government's response to covid you know would we be in this same position would we have the labor shortages would we have the disruptions to the supply chain the answer is no Right. So what happened there is we had a tremendous amount of central planning. We had these authoritarians come in and think that they could just turn off the global economy and then turn it right back on like a light switch. Right. And that's right. not going to do anything. Or they thought that they could just send everyone all these stimulus checks. They thought that they could send every single business PPP loans. And then that's that's not going to do anything long term detrimental. They thought that they could just lock everyone in a cage for six months or longer to where everyone had to buy everything on Amazon. So they go from buying services to buying goods. And then somehow they're not going to continue to buy from Amazon moving forward, which means we need more cardboard. We need more styrofoam. And this means we can't ship as many things as we did in the past. And this adds to the, uh, the, the, the fragility of the existing supply chain to where, you know, the result is what you see in the grocery store and what you're, you're seeing with a labor shortage. So the question becomes, if the problem is a result of central planning, are we going to have more or less central planning moving forward? Right. 
And the answer, I think, is obvious that we are going to have more because every single solution they're talking about right now involves the government taking a bigger and bigger role in our lives and in the economy. You know, what is Biden and what are these politicians talking about, uh, even in Davos this week, you know, with the World Economic Forum and the IMF? They're talking about how the cure for inflation and higher prices is just to give people more money. So we're going to have to figure out a way for governments to either tax more to give people enough money to where they can afford gas and food, or we're just going to have to, you know, print the money. We're going to have to run deficits. We're going to have to, you know, deficits that are monetized by the Fed, pretty much the playbook from 2020. And that's how we're going to quote unquote cure or solve the problem of consumer price inflation. And again, it goes back to what we said right at the beginning of the podcast, where even a third grader could tell you that that's going to make the problem worse. Right. Because the, the, the issue is with in consumer price inflation is not that people don't have enough money. The, the, the problem is we don't have enough stuff. And so if we're not taking measures to increase the amount of stuff, then we can't expect for us to solve the problem long term of consumer price inflation. It's going to stay the same or it's going to get worse. You know, they've got a saying that I'm sure you're very familiar with. The cure for high prices is high prices. And that's very true only if the market is allowed to work. And, you know, what's going to happen is entrepreneurs are going to come out there and they're going to see a spread and they're going to want to take advantage of that profit. And they're going to say, okay, well, I'm going to come and produce more stuff so I can make more money. Uh, but if they're not allowed to produce more stuff, if the supply chains are continually destroyed by the meddling of the central planners, the authoritarians, the global elite, you name it, uh, we can't expect for that free market process to actually do its job. And so that's why my base case is the CPI comes down a little bit because we're really destroying aggregate demand if the stock market goes down and especially if it starts affecting uh, people's purchasing power through the reduction of their home equity. But I, I wouldn't say that the CPI will go back down to you know, sub 2%. Uh, I, I think maybe it comes down to 6% or something like that, Q3, Q4. And then it starts going right back up because of the government's response to the downtrend in the CPI and the lack of purchasing power for the average American because of the stock market going down and this potentially a recession is what I'm referring to, potentially affecting their home equity. So, um, you know, if we could fix, so if, if we had a free market where the government would sit back and say, okay, we'll let the entrepreneurs just produce more stuff, then I would say, yeah, maybe we could, we could get back down to 2% before the government comes back in and starts their insanity again. But I don't know if that's realistic in the world we live in right now because uh, those supply chains are have been so damaged by the central planning. And uh, th that's not something you fix overnight. That takes a long, long time. And consumer behavior has really, really shifted towards uh, buying things online. And I, obviously it was going that direction. But when it happens that quickly, uh, that's a, a fundamental shift. And uh, the only way for us to catch up, again, is for free market capitalism to work.
but uh, the more the central planners get involved, the more they distort the economy and the lower the probability that uh, the free market solves those problems. Yeah, and I want to ask you about what you, you know, look, you just said, is this going to result in more government or less, right? And obviously, we know over the last couple of decades, if not the last century, the grasp with which not only national governments have continued to kind of strengthen their grip on their people, but also this new kind of global government that is emerging, the IMF, the World Economic Forum, Davos, you know, this kind of uh, consortium of just fucking like rich fucks that have, you know, kind of made these organizations that are now also kind of handing out the orders to each national central bank, to each national government, kind of the the puppet masters, if you will. Um, You know, we've really seen that develop in a way that has, you know, if you told somebody 50 years ago, they would have said it's fucking inconceivable. Some of the comments I've seen over the last couple of days coming out of that World Economic Forum have just been downright frightening. So there's no doubt that that grasp on a global level and on a national level is starting to, is you know starting to tighten what's the breaking point george i don't know but i i've how, how much further I've, can I've they been take thinking it? about that a lot you know i i believe we're going into the end of a fourth turning and everyone thinks that means it ends in war and i've actually had that discussion with neil howe and but everyone thinks the war is between two countries, or maybe the war is a civil war in the United States. But I don't know. Maybe it's a, a war of or between the average Joes and Janes, society, and the global elite. Maybe that's the, the war we wage. That's how this fourth turning ends. I, I don't know, but but I've been giving that quite a bit of thought because people are, are really starting to wake up to these agendas that are explicitly stated by the Bill Gates types, right? Or, or the World Economic Forum, the IMF. And their narrative is becoming more and more insane. And it's becoming more and more authoritarian, right? And this now they're taking on this this battle cry for censorship. You know, they want to uh, really squash what they call disinformation or misinformation. Of course, they're the ones that need to determine what the truth is, and they're the ones that need to determine what is false. I mean, right. it's straight propaganda from Stalin, you know, Hitler, Mussolini. I mean, you name it. And um, I think, you know, I just gave a presentation at Mark Moss's event in Dallas, and I went back and I really tried to research and think through how we got to where we are today with the Davos types. And how, how do they have so much influence over the politicians, the CEOs? You know, look at Mark Benioff. He's just a clone of, of Klaus Schwab. How do they? How did we get to this point where they have so much influence over society, over the the professors, the universities, the media, the entertainment business? And I went all the way back to 
the year 1513. And that's when a book was written called The Prince. And it was written by a guy by the name of Machiavelli. And this book really changed the world. And it was kind of uh, a how-to guide for politicians to not only gain power, but to maintain the power they have. And it's where we get phrases like the end justifies the means. Right. And basically his idea was, you know, we're just lying to ourselves, thinking that politicians and kings and people in power get there because they have integrity, when it's actually the opposite. In order to achieve your objectives, in order to contain, uh, maintain power and control, you have to be unethical. You have to be willing to lie. You have to be willing to cheat. You have to be willing to steal. You have to be willing, you know, in one of his uh, people that he uses as an example, I forgot the guy's name, but the this this prince brought in all of his, uh, what he said or his allies or, you know, the, the, the leaders of these other countries uh, into his country on like a friendship mission. You know, we, and then he gave them all these gifts and then at night he had them all assassinated. Jesus. And and Machiavelli points out that that's how you got to do things. <laughs> so why does this matter, right? Well, we fast forward to 1967, and uh, that's when Klaus Schwab first met Henry Kissinger. And Kissinger was teaching a class at Harvard, and or as a, a, a some sort of seminar, and Klaus attended that. And and Klaus even admits uh, on on camera and uh, in interviews that I've used in my whiteboard videos where he says that, that Kissinger had a massive impact on his life and the way he really thinks of the world. And so you say, okay, well, what does that have to do with Machiavelli? Well, Machiavelli had that same influence on Kissinger. So much so that one of the recent versions of The Prince, you know, it's still in print today, had Henry Kissinger's face on the cover. Jeez. Right. So then you look at the Club of Rome, which was set up in 1968, and they came out with a paper called Limits to Growth in 1972. And this was just basically regurgitation of the ideas of a guy by the name of Thomas Malthus, which is where we get the word Malthusian. And they pretty much believe that the world's population is growing exponentially, but we live in a world of limited resources. Therefore, we have to either curtail people's use of energy or we have to reduce the population. And uh, this had another massive impact on Klaus Schwab to the point where the guy that wrote the paper and started the Club of Rome was the keynote speaker at the World Economic Forum in 1973. Klaus set it up in 1971. Okay. So once you understand that there, that this has really shaped the worldview of the people that are in power today, not only Malthus, but Machiavelli. Then you start to see things through a much different lens and you can understand why they're uh, pushing certain narratives and why they have certain objectives. And it really boils down to three things, Chris. Number one, they wanna reduce energy use of the global population. And this is where climate change comes in. This is where the lockdowns, you know, it, it all makes sense if you look at it again through that framework. Number two, they want to reduce the birth rate. I mean, Bill Gates openly comes out in his YouTube videos and says that if the world's population goes from 7 billion up to 9 billion or 12 billion, this is a big, big problem. 
and uh, so so much so that he actually has to make excuses as to why he is trying to improve health uh, because, well, wouldn't that just increase the population? And that's going to be bad because we all know that humans are, uh, you know, the enemy of the earth and, and, and mother nature. So uh, then you look at what's yeah, happened. Because we're all not standing in a field somewhere burning a giant wooden owl jerking each other off in a circle. Excuse me. Sorry. Yeah. That's my uh, added analysis of the situation. Yeah, exactly. So, uh, but you, you look at, uh, you know, everything that they say and it boils down to those three objectives. The third one was just usurping power, control, and wealth. So look at what the, the lockdowns, did that achieve one of those objectives or if not all? Absolutely it did. You look at, uh, you know, you know, I've had this discussion before, but I think that there's a, a big push in the mainstream media for the United States to get involved with what's going on with Russia and Ukraine. Well, if the United States gets involved, if we have another you know, World War III, let's say, is that going to help them achieve those objectives? The, the, the answer is absolutely yes. So I'm not saying they're behind all of these things, but I am saying that they are definitely going to take advantage of every crisis situation to try to get them closer and closer to these goals of uh, reducing the birth rate, reducing energy use, and usurping power, control, and wealth. And I think the next step to that, if we go into a recession or another financial crisis, is through a central bank digital currency. And they're going to implement that through UBI. And once they get that central bank digital currency, then they go to the reserve asset or pushing for the reserve asset to be the ESDR instead of the dollar. And this is something that the gal that's in charge of the IMF has been talking about this whole entire week at Davos. If you read the CNBC articles on it, right, she's really pushing for this uh, ESDR to be kind of the global reserve currency and pushing for central bank digital currencies. Now she's saying that the reason she uh, wants this so badly to come to fruition is because of the, uh, the, the payment burden on the poor globally for cross-border payments. Yeah. This is their Trojan horse, right? Exactly. This is their Trojan horse that they set up and they say, Oh, well, we just want to help the poor. We want to, and you know, one of their battle cries is they want to reduce global inequality or they want to reduce the the global. Well, whatever. There's a number of bullshit explanations you can fucking, you know, file it under you can say it's because of climate change you can say it's because of the greater good you can say it's because of environmental racism you could say it's because of inequality financial inequality i mean it just doesn't even matter it's so offensive whatever they try to fucking say just to like get it in through the door like you're saying it doesn't even matter but the point is like it's absolutely fucking frightening like you're talking about you're talking about somebody being able to control the entire global monetary system. Correct. You know, unilaterally, which is correct. Correct. Uh, should scare so, the shit out of everybody. Sorry, go ahead. Yeah, and absolutely. And even in pe- even if people are in favor of uh, you know finding a solution, I, I think great. Let's let the free market do it. But even if people want to come in and say, "Oh, George or Chris, you guys are just being tinfoil hatters." You know, this, this, there's they don't have any ill will. They don't. That's this isn't their intention. You know, their intentions are good. Yada yada yada. Fine, so be it. 
But let's just go back to their objectives, the third one, being usurping power, control, and wealth. If, let's just say their intentions are good and they want to reduce the, the costs for cross-border payments to help the poor and, and middle class all over the world. Uh, okay, well, does that give them more power, control, and wealth? The answer is yes, absolutely. So whether they're doing it intentionally or unintentionally, the net result is still the same. And as we know, just from human nature, the bigger government gets, or the bigger the central planning entity gets, the more it attracts sociopaths and people who have an insatiable lust for power and control. And that's the big problem here. Right. And I think that's I think that's extremely well said. And I think some of the comments from this past week, and I've just seen the bits and pieces that have been on, on Twitter, I think have just been you know, disturbing. And I'm glad that we got a chance to discuss them because I know that you are far more into avoiding the Great Reset type stuff uh, than I am. And so, uh, look, I don't really have too much else but for I'm interested in whether or not you think Powell is going to eventually cave here or not with rates. Uh, that'll be kind of like my last question. That is, of course, the million-dollar question, right? If he caves, everybody knows the market's going to rip. It's going to go limit up. Inflation's going to come in through the door and continue to rise. He's going to be okay with it. We'll be able to monetize debts, and we're going to go down that path. If he sticks with it now, he's just been confirmed for a second term, decides to grab his testicle sack and squeeze it and hold it and just, you know, hope for the best and say that, you know, we're going hell or high water. I'm going to fucking stop inflation no matter what. Uh, it's going to be a much profoundly different uh, outcome for the market and for the economy. And so what do you think? Is there still a Fed put? And if so, where is it? Yeah, well, I think we need to realize the Fed's bark is far bigger than their bite. And I know Jerome Powell likes to talk as if he's Paul Volcker, but his actions are more like Ben Bernanke or, or Janet Yellen. And so he talks very hawkish, but his actions are very dovish. Let, let's remember that uh, with all of this talk about fighting inflation, interest rates are still at 75 basis points. Right when, when the CPI is at 8.3%. <laughs> so I think their game plan is to talk tough to bring down the stock market right? In, in, in an orderly fashion or maybe cool off the housing market because they believe that will reduce aggregate demand. And if it reduces aggregate demand, then that should bring the CPI down to a level that is politically palatable. Now, the problem there is they don't have that much control. It's not like a thermometer where you can just dial it into that degree of uh, detail or precision. So uh, they could break something and you have a disorderly decline. And then what do they do? Well, I think it depends on if CPI is trending down. So let's fast forward another, let's say, three or four months. If uh, CPI has gone from 8.3 down to, let's say, I don't know, 7.5, 7%, something like that, I think that they would be far more responsive from a standpoint of monetary policy because they could at least say that, oh, well, we told you inflation's transitory. There's nothing to worry about. It's on its way down. So if we bring, if we drop rates back down to zero and do QE, infinity again, 
then it, it's not going to matter. Just don't worry about it. And then, of course, it spikes up, and then the question becomes, what do they do then? But if if inflation, let's say, goes from 8.3 in three months or four months to 9 or 9.5, then that puts them in a much, much different position where I don't know. I, I think what they'd have to do then is they'd have to just start talking dovishly. Um I don't know that they could, <laughs> you know, it's, it's like the, the same game in reverse where you, they know they really can't raise interest rates to a certain, to a, even I'd say 1.52% because it will crush the economy. Uh, you know, then in that scenario, they know that they couldn't lower rates too much and they couldn't do QE or else it's going to potentially exacerbate the inflation problem. So I think it's just a game of expectations policy and just, talking a big talk but yet doing very very little right and uh that, that's kind of my base case there yeah and i think there's precedent for that you know you're not just pulling that out of your ass i think all of that makes sense and anybody with you know a couple of brain cells to rub together can see that that you know you're probably on the right path there to the most uh likely outcome george listen man i want to thank you so much for giving me an hour of your time i know you're extraordinarily busy nowadays but uh, it's awesome to have you back, man, and I look forward to coming back on uh, your Rebel Capitalist channel, which, by the way, I noticed is just kicking absolute ass, uh, just like your other channel. You have two channels, George Gammon, and you have Rebel Capitalist, both on YouTube. Uh, yep. Everybody should check out. And, of course, Rebel Capitalist Pro, where uh, George and Lynn Alden, Chris McIntosh, Brent Johnson, all these guys get together, do live question and answers. They have a wonderful forum over there. It's uh, it's a wonderful platform, and I love sending people your way, George. Yeah, well, I love your content. I love being a part of, of what you're doing and sponsoring the show, and just keep it up, man. This is one of my favorite podcasts, and you are, uh, I think, a master at what you do, and it's just great, solid information, and it's incredibly entertaining. <laughs> Thanks, and, there, and there's the patented George Gammon laugh. To, uh, to I don't know about the, everybody else, but when I listen to your podcast, I always I always wait for that. That comes like after every sentence. Some days, you know, I'll be yeah. like, "Welcome you back <laughs> to the Rebel Capitalist Show, uh, George. You're great, man. Hope to talk to you soon. All right, brother. All right, have a good one, buddy. All right, bye bye. That was the one, the only Mr. George Gammon, incredible guy, and one of my absolute favorite uh, pre people to listen to when it comes to the economy and trying to navigate the world of out of control central banks. But for right now, fools, I got shit to do today. It's nice out. You know what I mean? Tomorrow's going to be a beautiful day. Happy to speak to you. Happy to be heard from. Happy in general. Have a great fucking day. Peace. <laughs>